0: One thing that we're all about here at Restore is the city of Austin, the community of Austin around us. And we have partnerships that we do community service type things through. And one of those partnerships that we love is this school right here that we're sitting in, Fullmore Middle School. And Fullmore Middle School is, um, they, they take great care of us. They have an incredible administrative staff and teachers and faculty. And we've gotten to know a lot of them over the last year. But one thing they don't have is a ton of money. Um, and they have quite a few kids that struggle to get school supplies each year that come to school here. And so we are having on August 21st, which is the day before school starts again for AISD, we're having a back to school bash. And so it's really just going to be this fun time of getting together. We'll have our normal gathering right here and then we'll go out, um, kind of like we do with the barbecue. It'll be under the trees out there. We'll have food, free food and giveaways and games and inflatables for kids. And it'll just be kind of a big party to celebrate the end of summer. And then, um, during that time, like what we always say is, we want to party with a purpose at Restore. And so one thing that we want to do this time is we're having a school supply drive for kids at Fullmore. And so there are two ways that you can participate in that. Um, One is that you can buy individual school supplies from the school supply list. So we have those in our connection center, which is right up the stairs, straight ahead. You go back there, we have just a bunch of printouts with everything a kid at Fullmore needs. So you can just grab that, you can go shop for it, you can bring it back over the next few weeks, we'll have a big bin for you to put it in, and we'll collect all of those things for the back-to-school bash. The other thing that you can do is you can go back to that same spot, and you can actually buy a pre-made pack of all the school supplies that a kid at Fullmore will need. We go through this company and they give us a great deal. It's $28 for one of these packs. And that gives a kid every piece of school supplies that they need for the entire year. And so cash, check, credit card, whatever, you can go back there, $28 per pack, and you can buy a pack of school supplies or two or 20 for kids here at school our goal is to get a hundred backpacks filled with school supplies for kids here at fullmore middle school we are going to provide the church going to provide all the backpacks so at the back to school bash we're going to have this area set up where you can grab a backpack You can get all of the different pieces of school supplies and put it in a backpack, and then at the very end, you can grab a little note card, write a little word of encouragement to the kid that's gonna get the backpack, hope you have a great year, throw it in there, and then we're gonna give it to them for the very next day, school starts. So a lot of kids who come to school that first day, and they don't know if they're gonna have the school supplies that they need for school that year, they get to walk into a backpack filled with everything that they need um, because God worked through our church. So that's the back to school bash with the school supply list and drive. The second thing I wanna tell you about is we are having a volunteer appreciation dinner. So if you're one of these incredible people that serve here at Restore, uh, maybe you're on our setup team that comes early and sets up everything and tears everything down afterwards, or maybe you're on our kids team that helps with our kids or connection team or any other ways that you serve here at Restore, we wanna invite you to be appreciated. And that's to come to our volunteer appreciation dinner, which is August 6th, that's this Saturday, 5 to 7 p.m. We're gonna have free Chick-fil-A, Um, just fun time hanging out, giveaways, stuff like that. So if you're a servant and here, volunteer here at Restore, you should have already gotten an email about that. You can just RSVP so we know how much food. If you didn't, just come see me or somebody else who serves here. If you are not currently serving and you would like to, feel free to come to the dinner and that can kind of be your kickoff to um, serving with us here at Restore. So those are some things we have going on um, at our church. Before we dive into scripture this morning, we are ending our colossians series today so this is the last week as we've been walking through the book of colossians if you haven't been here we've just been kind of going verse by verse through this four chapter book um we're looking at a passage today that's not it's not an easy one to look at um it's a somewhat controversial one to look at and chances are um you're going to maybe be offended at some point today. Um, and so what I'll ask you to do is just kind of have an open mind as we look at this scripture, as we talk about the context in which it was written and why it was written and what we believe that it means for us today. So let me pray and we're going to dive in. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for time here together. Thank you for the freedom to come and sit and worship um, and learn more about you. God, I pray that as we open your word, um, your love letter to us, that you would speak to us through it. And God, that we would have open minds to understand it, for you to impart your truth onto our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I said, we're wrapping up our Colossians series today. Um, And then next week, we're going to start our series called Lay It Down. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because a couple of months ago, we did uh, a single sermon called Lay It Down, where we focused on Hebrews 12.1, which says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us lay down every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance, the race God has set before us. At the end of that message, as we looked at that passage, we had note cards that if you were here, everybody filled out a note card with things that they felt like God was telling them to lay down, things that you're struggling with, sin struggles, whatever it was that was weighing you down, that was tough on you, that was on your shoulders, we wrote those things down and we said, we're gonna lay those down. And we brought those up to the front and we literally laid them down. So what we did with those, our staff, we took those and we prayed over each and every one of those, prayed that you would have freedom and deliverance and forgiveness for those types of things. And then we took them and we put them into categories and it came up in six categories and we said we're going to do a sermon series, one for each of those categories to talk about things that we deal with, things that we struggle with as a church, as people. And so we're going to start that next week by looking at addiction. That's the first one. Now, addiction was obviously one of the top six, but it wasn't the number one thing that was written down. The number one thing that was written down was relationships. On like 80% of the cards that came in, somebody wrote relationships in some way, shape or form. I mean, that's kind of incredible, right? 80% of us are dealing with some form of strife or struggle in our everyday relationships. Our relationships define so much about us, right? Who's your family? Where'd you come from? Who is your spouse? Who's your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Who are your friends? Who do you hang out with? Those things define us. They, a lot of times they make us who we are. So it's no surprise that first of all, that came in at 80% and the number one answer, but it's also no surprise that Paul concludes his letter to the Colossians talking about relationships. Now, remember all that Paul has told the church in Colossae thus far centers around Colossians 2, 9 and 10, which we've already looked at. But it says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, that is, all the fullness of God, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So Christ is God, is what Paul is saying. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And then in Christ, subsequently, we have been brought to fullness. So the question becomes... How does knowing that we've been brought to fullness in Christ change the way we approach relationships in our lives? That's what Paul seeks to answer here in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. You can turn there on your phone. The um, scriptures will also be on the screen behind me. Verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So that was what I was talking about. So a controversial, yeah. So before any other men yell amen or before any other men kind of elbow their wives and are like, this should be your favorite verse, okay, before that happens or before, ladies, any of you get up and walk out, I want to talk about the context of this verse, okay? Now, if you've ever been to Restore before, if you've come a few times, you've probably heard me talk about the importance of context. And if you start coming back, You will hear me talk about the importance of context. And it's because it's vitally important for us to understand what was happening, who it was written to, who wrote it, what the situation was, what the context was, if we're going to understand what it really means and how it relates to us. The context is vitally important. If we do not understand the context, we are in danger of perverting what the Scripture is really trying to say. This happens all the time. In fact, it happens with one of, if not the most commonly quoted verse in the entire Bible. You know what that might be? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You've probably seen this verse somewhere, we see it all over the place. It's on t-shirts, it's on banners, it's on uh, walls and gyms, It's, it's everywhere. And in fact, when I was playing football in college, this verse was written on the whiteboard in our weight room. And okay, so to give you a little context about that, during the off-season, we had to get up at 5 a.m. every morning to go in for early morning workouts. So we'd go in, you'd be groggy, you'd kind of pull yourself out of bed, you'd walk in and on the whiteboard right in front of you, the huge thing it say, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So whenever someone was having trouble finishing a lift or they were slacking off during running or agility training or whatever, we had this one coach who would come and he would yell Philippians 4.13 at us, right? You'd be like struggling to get the last thing up. You'd be right here going, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I mean, he'd just be screaming it at you, right? And you'd be like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I thought like, oh, well, I guess if we want to use the Bible that way and it gives us more pump in the weight room, that's great. Powerful stuff, no doubt, no doubt about it. But is that really what Paul had in mind when he wrote Philippians 4:13. Let's look at it in context starting in verse 10. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation whether it is with a full stomach or empty with plenty or little for I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so the context here is that Paul is in prison a prison where he has learned to be content even when they don't give him food even when they don't give him water even when they beat him he has learned that no matter what he is walking through, he can walk through it because he's not relying on his own strength, he is relying on the strength of Jesus. Kind of makes this verse fall short as the motto of your favorite sports team, doesn't it? It's a lot bigger than that and it's a lot more important than that. When we take verses out of context, verses start to be used as proof texts for arguments that have no consistency with what God's story is even remotely about. These verses then become more about proving our preformed opinions or making points that benefit us. Another example, a few years ago, um, I knew a high school student who was considering where uh, he wanted to go to college and he really wanted to be a veterinarian. So he was looking at schools that had really good veterinarian programs. And so he narrowed it down to two schools, Texas A&M and Colorado State, I knew that was gonna happen. (laughs) Texas A&M and Colorado State were two schools, two of the top vet programs in the nation. And the decision, it was really like eating him up inside. He could not decide what to do. It was these two, there were no other schools, but it was 50-50 split. He had no idea what he was going to do. And then one day I ran into him at church and he comes up to me and he says, Zach, I know where God wants me to go to college. I figured it out. I know where God wants me to go to college. And I, I said, man, that's great you know, where are you going to go? And he said, Colorado State. I'm going to Colorado State. And I said, man, Colorado State's a great school. Congrats. So how did you know that's where God wanted you to go to school? He said, well, I was reading my Bible the other day and I came across Psalm 121.1, which says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? (laughs) He said, college station is really kind of flat, but Fort Collins, where Colorado state is, has these beautiful mountains. And so I knew lift my eyes up to the mountains. I needed to go to Colorado state as a completely true story, by the way, I did not make that up in any way, shape or form, but I will omit names to protect those who are innocent in that story. But we do this with the Bible all the time, all the time. In fact, the point of all of this is that this happens quite a bit with our passage today, Colossians three eighteen. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. I've seen this verse and one or two others like it used to subjugate women, especially in a marriage relationship, used by men primarily to lord power over women and even in abusive situations. A few months after amy and i got married we attended a class um, for new couples at the church that uh, we were going to and each week in this class we would talk about a new topic related to being a new married couple and one of the topics one week was called women's roles that was the they did a men's roles and they did a women's roles and some other things so i remember sitting in that room like it was yesterday. So we go and we sit down in this room and you know, we're all kind of in rows and there's a big whiteboard at the front and the lady comes in who's teaching the women's roles class that evening. And she says, she goes up to the whiteboard and she writes sex supper and submission on the board. That's what she wrote on the board. And then she said, ladies, these three S's are a really easy way for you to remember what your role is in marriage. Um, I could feel Amy stiffen a little bit <laughs> next to me in anger and I became kind of laughing involuntarily, honestly, because I thought, I mean, I thought it was a joke, right? I thought it was like, oh, that was really funny. Let's really get into what a woman's role is in marriage. But laughing out loud, I started to get a really mean look from the teacher. A look like, why are you laughing, moron? This is exactly what I'm going to teach on tonight. And I realized something horribly, horribly tragic. This was not a joke. This is what we were going to teach the women in this young couple's class, that their role in life could be boiled down to these three S's. And do you know where we opened up our Bibles to that night? Colossians three eighteen. And we camped out on that verse and we sat through more than an hour of horrifically damaging and biblically incorrect teaching because someone had decided to rip this verse out of its context and apply it to their preconceived notion of what marriage is supposed to be so in order to prevent this kind of what i would call biblical perversion The question we must ask when we are reading the scripture is, what is the context in which this passage is written? Or more to the point specifically about this passage, what was family life like 2000 plus years ago in Colossae and the surrounding areas when this was written? Now, the first thing we need to know about this context is that it was a totalitarian patriarchy. A totalitarian patriarchy, and that's just kind of a fancy way of saying that the sociological model in this culture was that the male was completely and totally in charge and in control of everything. A totalitarian, a total patriarchy, the male was totally in control. For the most part, men were the only one that could own property and that property was not property like we think of today, right? It did include land and homes and things like that, but primarily. The property that they had were slaves, concubines, children, and wives. That was what men owned in this culture. They were the possessions of the man. They were not parts of the family. The, posi- the possessions existed primarily to benefit the man. The slaves did this by working in and around the household. The children in the very same way. They kind of did it by working in and around the household. And the wife did this mostly by bearing male heirs. That was pretty much her job. She bore male heirs. That was really what she was good for. That was what they wanted her to do. Not only were women not equal in this society, they were considered the property of men. They belonged to the men. But what Paul realized is that in this society, the totalitarian patriarchy was not congruent with the teachings of Jesus and the entire kingdom of God. You think about it, when men were ready to stone the woman caught in adultery, what did Jesus do? Pick up the stone and go right along with them? They were just property, right? No, he bent down and knelt next to the woman caught in adultery, put her face in his hands and saved her life. When no one would go near the woman at the well because of her reputation, Jesus not only went over and talked to her, he drank water from her bucket. Women stood by Jesus' side when he died, and they were the first ones to know when he rose from the dead. So Paul and the first century church are living in this totalitarian patriarchy, and he knows that he needs to address it. He knows that this isn't what the kingdom of God teaches. And so when he sees not just society around him, but people in the churches that he started acting this way, it grieves him. He knows that it's not okay. He needs to address it, and he does this in the letter to the Colossians and most of his other correspondence with churches simply by putting Christ at the center of everything Christ at the center of relationships Christ at the center of church Christ at the center of life. Look at what he said just a few verses before in Colossians 3:11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. He basically says the same thing to the letter in his letter to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. Listen to this. There is no male Or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus God's kingdom changes our relationships it's different we don't just conform to the society around us anymore it changes the way we love people the way we treat people Paul is unapologetic on this point in one verse The one I just read, he dismisses society's hierarchies and caste system around race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and gender in one verse. He says, this is ridiculous. This is not the way the kingdom of God operates. This is not the way the savior and the king of the world operated when he was here on earth. If we use use the widely accepted definition of feminism that feminism is, quote, a movement to achieve political, economic, personal, and social rights for women that are equal to those of men, then Paul was one of the very first feminists to walk the earth. I know that offended some of you. He wanted equality. He said there is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Gentile. Your race, your socioeconomic status, your gender doesn't matter. Christ matters. He is central to all and he makes all of us equal. We're on a level playing field because of what he has done. If you have said yes to Jesus, then the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of me lives inside of you. The same Holy Spirit that empowers anything that I do, empowers anything that you do, and if that is true, then why would we ever say that someone is limited or put into a certain hierarchy because of their race or their gender or their socioeconomic status, or anything else about them. So with that understanding, let's take another look at our passage from Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The first thing we need to recognize in these two verses is verse 18. The end of it says, as is fitting to the Lord. Well, we've read the rest of Paul's letter in Colossians. We've looked at other things that Paul has said. So we already know what is fitting to the Lord regarding our relationships. We are equal in Christ. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Gentile. We are one. We are equal. We are on the same playing field in Christ. The second thing we need to know is that the word translated love here in verse 19, husbands, love your wives, is the word agape. And some of you may have, heard that word before. You see there were many different words for the word love in the original Greek in which the New Testament was written in. Some of them are for friendship, some of them are for passion, some of them are for love of self, but there's one that stands above all the rest and that is agape, love. This is the sacrificial love, a love that puts others in front of yourself, a love that's even willing to lay down its life. For someone else. This is the kind of love that is spoken about in John 3 16. For God so loved the world, agape. For God so agaped the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting eternal life. So what verse 18 and 19 really represent here is a, what we would call a parallel passage. Parallel commands, lay down everything for each other. Wives, submit, lay down for your husband. Husbands, love, sacrificially lay down your life for your wife. This is what Paul teaches. This is what is taught throughout scripture. This love that doesn't seek its own power, it doesn't seek its own fame or honor, but yet seeks the provision and health of and well-being of others first. The world then, and the world now, seems to encourage us to always be in a struggle for power in our relationships. Right? Always need to have the upper hand. Right? We need to watch what we say when we're talking to our spouse or to our friends. Right? Lest we give away power or let them know something about us or give away the upper hand. But when society is screaming at us to do whatever we have to do to keep the upper hand, Jesus is quietly whispering in our ear saying, love is laying your life down for someone else. Those are radically different things. I had the privilege of marrying two of my good friends um, and family members here at Restore uh, a week ago. And during the part of the ceremony where there is the charge to the couples, where we say this is what marriage is really about, I reminded them that marriage is not about two people compromising and meeting in the middle. Marriage is about two people completely sacrificing themselves to become one. And that's about a lot more than marriage. If you love someone, a friend, a spouse, a child, that love is sacrificial. That love needs to be a love that puts others before itself. But this is backwards. This is opposite. This is countercultural. This is the kingdom of God, right? It's always been a little backwards. It's always been a little countercultural. The world screams and says, Have the upper hand. Jesus whispers and says, Lay your life down. Lay your life down. The kingdom of God, an incredible place where we live and love as equals because of what Jesus has done for us. But Paul doesn't stop with husbands and wives. He goes on, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. In a society where children were the property and fathers were the gods, these two verses are revolutionary. They're life-changing for the church for the people who would read them why would it matter if fathers embittered their children if they were just their property there were actual laws in place in this society that stipulated how much a father was allowed to beat his children like within a certain range of death that's what society thought of these father-child relationships Paul is radically changing the mindset here from this hierarchical power to mutual love children obey your parents fathers don't embitter your children love each other he does it again with slaves and masters starting in verse 22 slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord whatever you do work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward It is the Lord Christ you are serving, not your master. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Again, revolutionary. Paul tells slaves to work as if they are working for Jesus. And he tells masters to provide for their slaves what is right and what is fair because really you're not the master, he reminds them. You have a master in heaven. Again, these statements would turn the totalitarian patriarchy of the time on its head. Think about it, giving a slave what is right and fair, it really means that they aren't a slave anymore, if you think about it. They would receive fair payment for their work and they would receive right standing in the community, which would be freedom. Paul is subtly, 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 that's not a word. Subtly, that's the way it's spelled though, just in case you were wondering. Paul is subtly undermining the society around him. They could get, mass, slave masters get away with whatever they, with whatever they wanted in the society. They were literally property. It was like owning a chair in the same way that you owned a slave. If you decided to cut your chair up and burn it for a fuel or whatever, nobody cared, right? If you decided to work your slaves till they died, nobody cared, it was your property. Paul says, treat them the right way and the fair way. And I think it's incredible because this isn't just lip service for Paul either. Later, in his letter to Philemon about Philemon's slave Onesimus, Paul puts his money where his mouth is on slavery. Listen to this letter. Therefore, although in Christ I, this is Paul, could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, which would mean free Onesimus, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart, back to you. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand and I will pay it back. Wow. Wow. He says, I know that this guy used to be You're a slave, but that's not how the kingdom of God operates. You know that. I know that. I'm sending him back to you, and I want you to do the right thing. Treat him like a brother. Don't treat him like a slave. And if he owes you anything, if it costs him anything to get out of his slavery, to buy his freedom, Paul says, charge it to me. Charge it to me. So do you see a pattern here? Paul has grabbed the torch of equality in Christ from Jesus himself. Jesus who looked at people through one lens, right? Jesus who looked at people as equal, and Paul's running as fast as he can with it. No wonder he's in prison all the time, right? He's turning society around. He used a lot of ink, and he spilled a lot of his own blood fighting against the totalitarian patriarchy of his time. He literally fought against the inequality of this society and got beaten up for it. His goal was very simple. He wanted to create a place where people are welcomed, where people are appreciated, and where people are loved, no matter who they are or what they've done. And he called that place the church. That was always what the church was supposed to be. You see, we We're not a group of people who just has a bunch of rules about how we're supposed to treat each other and how we're supposed to interact with each other. No, we're a community that puts sacrificial, agape love above everything else. We're a place where the only hierarchy is that Jesus sits above all. Under that, we are all one in Christ. We are a family that stands as equals before the throne of God. So back to the question at the very beginning, how does the fullness of Christ in us change our relationships? I think it's very simple. It changes our relationships because we realize that Christ's complete and total fullness also resides in those we are in relationship with. Think about it. We like to put labels on people, right? Rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, Old, young, worth my time, not worth my time. But Jesus had one label, loved. A love, it's not just any love, a love that drove him to the cross to die for every person who has lived or ever will live. That's the label that he put on people. That truth should radically change the way we interact with the world around us. In a world that it just might be more divided than we've ever seen, at least in our lifetime, a world that it seems to always be at each other's throats over race, politics, gender, and everything else, the church should be the shining beacon of equality and sacrificial love. If you want to change the world, it starts with how you treat those closest to you. It starts with your relationships. I don't want to speak for any of you, but I know I haven't done a very great job of this my entire life. I've tried to manipulate and tried to have the upper hand in relationships more times than I would like to admit, and I've shown true sacrificial love a lot less times than I would like to admit. I think it's probably because I try so hard to control everything around me, right? You you know what I'm talking about? I feel like I have to be in control. I feel like I have to manage the situation, manage the relationship. I'm sure that if you struggle with this, with this idea of turning over control of your life, of your relationships to Jesus, it's probably for the very same reason. We're about to sing a song together called Lord, I need you. And the chorus is pretty to the point. It just says, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. If you're like me this morning, if you have not been allowing Jesus to really take control of your relationships, if you have not been allowing him to sacrificially love, to agape love those who you are closest to, I'd love for you to just use this time to say, Lord, I need you. I can't sacrificially love anybody on my own. You have to do that through me. The fullness of God and Christ that resides inside of me has to be the source and the power for that sacrificial love. We can't do it on our own. Tell him that you need him and then allow him as you go out of here this week to love people through you, And I promise that it will change your relationships in ways that you could not even ask or imagine. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are this morning. Thank you for the fact that you sacrificially loved us first. The fact that your agape love drove you to leave the perfect heaven and come to the broken earth and lay down your very life for us. And you offer that same life back to us. God, a life that is empowered by your Holy Spirit, a life that when we trust you with it, when we give you control of it, you sacrificially love people through us, God change our hearts, change our relationships, change the way that we interact with those around us, and then, God, change the world through us. God, I pray that this church and the church would be marked by sacrificial love and equality for everyone that walks through its doors. I pray that our lives would be marked by the same. In Jesus' name we pray.